and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kevin Riggs with Randall Communications, and we are talking today about digital influencers. By that, I mean social media, specifically the use of the Twitter platform in the hothouse of Sacramento. How is it used by politicians? How is it used by capital staff? How is it used by uh, the political media? Is it effective? How does it shape news coverage? How does it shape the development of public policy? Randall has put together a report, Digital Influencers, which outlines much of this in detail with some interesting data, and we'll be getting into that. And to help me talk about all this is a guy who just, I don't know, might know a thing or two about Only digital media, just a little bit. John Myers, who's the Sacramento Bureau Chief with the Los Angeles Times. Always good to see you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I was going to say you were joining me here in the studio, then I got to thinking, well, if there's not that ugly acoustical tile glued on the walls, <laughs> is it really a studio? It counts. It counts. Everything's it's, a studio these days. It's wherever part of the right. It's wherever the microphones and cameras are. It's wherever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. John is a former um, uh, television and radio uh, journalist who joined the LA Times what three years ago? Yeah, twenty fifteen. Goes goes quickly. Mm-hmm. And so um, wanted to talk to you in particular about this issue because number one, I recall you were sort of an early adopter of Twitter. Back in the days when it was this newfangled thing. Well, I have a story to tell. Yeah. We will talk about that uh, around the time of, of the um, serious budget crises in Sacramento. And then also because this report that we talked about that Randall has put together ranks um, influencers. And among um, Capital Press, you rank among the very top tier of, of influencers. How did I not get number use. one? Well... I knew you were going to say that, you know, because you're not you're not competitive at all, right? In this business, no. I want to know the metrics to this, Kevin. I want to know the methodology. We will we will later bring in the numbers experts because I I got into journalism because I can't do math. Let <laughs> me both. Let me both. So let me start by first asking you about uh, the ranking, um, the fact that you're considered among one of the top influencers. What does that say to you about your use of Twitter and and the bureau's use of Twitter? Um. Good question. I, you know, I think that, well, first of all, I mean, we have to distinguish, I think, in social media, and I think most people talk about this now, right? Facebook and Twitter, different audiences, different uses. Yeah. Twitter has become very much, and it wasn't, which we can talk about in a moment, has become very much of a, of a breaking news platform of, of, of pieces of information in real time. Yeah. Facebook still, I don't think, is that. It's more of a, like, what's been happening for a week or your day or your beautiful garden. Where you're traveling. Where you're traveling, exactly, which yeah. is a heck of a lot more fun sometimes. <laughs> um, so I think as as Twitter has um, evolved into that, and I don't think it started that way, I think it really gravitates toward journalists, and I think it gravitates toward people who uh, want bits of news through the day who follow it. And the technology's gotten easier, right? On your phone, you can have um, people you follow with an instant notification. So mm-hmm. you can see when, you know, the governor drops his uh, his Big Mac at the, in front of the Capitol and like somebody has a photo of it. It's a news feed. It is. It really is a news feed. And, I, and, and we approach it that way. I mean, I've always approached it that way. And then some of my colleagues at the paper do and others in the Capitol Press Corps. And I think that's what draws people in. I will confess that I am occasionally uh, um, pulled away to tweet about my alma mater, Duke Blue <laughs> and basketball. You're or, forgiven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or uh, the Super Bowl. I think I did a couple of tweets that day. Because I think, I think at a certain point, I mean, it is who you are. Um, and you do have a part of you in it. But first and foremost, it's news. And I think that's what people bring in. To, that's why they come. 
So we were talking about you being a, an early adopter of this thing, and, and certainly far before I was when I was covering the Capitol, I started seeing these these people were talking about these tweets. What's a from, tweet from John Myers and talking about what was happening at the Capitol when the you wanted to know how I knew something that you didn't know. I, right? Absolutely, I thought this is this is this is magical. How does right. this guy do this? So how take me back to that? How did you get into it so early? Well, Twitter predated my use of it. I mean, I think when, I can't remember the exact date that Twitter got turned on, 2007, 2006, something to that effect. Um, I had looked at, I'd signed up for an account because I just signed up for everything. And important tip, I signed up early with my name and I don't have the most unique name in the universe. And so like, I I had no idea that that was going to come in handy later when I actually used it. Um, But I signed up just as a novelty thing and I didn't really use it. And I often told people, because it was these, particular days around 2008, people were like saying, well, you know, you should use Twitter for journalism. I'm like, what is the point? <laughs> it's 120 characters as it was back then. There's no point in this. I mean, I don't want to do that. What am I going to tweet Prop 98, how the school funding guarantee works? I feel good hearing this. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I, was, I was entirely that guy. This is ridiculous. I'm not doing it. Lo and behold, we get to almost exactly 10 years from when you and I are talking. Uh, what I call, some people in Sacramento call it kind of the Valentine's Day massacre of 2009. State was facing a $42 billion budget shortfall. We were having budget negotiations. You and I were covering through the night at the state capitol. I thought, well, I'm going to turn the Twitter the Twitter on and uh, see what I can do just kind of as a, maybe almost to the point of like making notes to myself about my reporting of who was negotiating with where and what was going on. And this was a real crisis. I yeah. mean, I mean, you had lawmakers actually bringing sleeping bags uh, yes. to the capitol and they were locking down the chambers. This was actually... Serious, serious stuff. One of two times I have slept in the press bay of the Capitol. It was not a pleasant <laughs> night's sleep watching the sun come up. Right. Um, but so I just started kind of experimenting with it, just thinking that it would be, as I said, a way for me to take notes a little bit, um, that it would remind me of things that happened at three in the morning because I could go back and see what I said when Daryl Steinberg and Arnold Schwarzenegger were yelling in the hallway. They didn't, but that would have been fun. Yeah. Um, and it just snowballed. And I turned it on the next morning and the next morning, and there were more followers and there were more followers. And and I now think um, that was the moment. The Light thing that I can't off. kill. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. And the, the best anecdote, Kevin, of the whole thing that I tell people sometimes is I remember going in to the state Senate for one of these evening negotiations. And there was a well-paid lobbyist who shall remain nameless, who was in the hallway, who said, oh, I've got dinner reservations with my wife. You're going to be in there. Great. I can follow it. I'll know what's going on. And I thought... Thanks. I'm glad your life is moving on and I'm going into the Senate. Right. But it it was an early um, indicator how people were using that material. And so from there to now, 10 years, um, we've just kind of poked, prodded here, there. Originally, you were just doing standalone tweets. Then people realized it could be you could live tweet an event. Then we started realizing we could link to our stories online. Then we can link to audio, uh, podcasts that I've been doing. People video. attach video. Right. Yeah, I mean, everything changed, but it, it all was just an experiment out of a crisis of journalism to kind of see what it was like. And um, and I got and, I, and it got and it got to be fun. Let me just say that, too. It got to be fun. The writing for, style, um, which is more conversational. Yeah. You and I both have long broadcast careers. Broadcasting is conversational uh, style. And I think Twitter really plays to that. And it also has evolved to the point where you see you see even banter going back and right. forth on Twitter. Um, there's Twitter fights, but there's also the bantering that goes on, and that's kind of fun to watch as well. Right, and and the other part that I 
did early on that I think is really helpful is uh, because Twitter, you know, and people have different opinions of whether they love it, hate it. And certainly uh, I think it's a, um, it's a force that people probably should have more conversations about for good and bad. But one of the things I've, I liked early on about Twitter is that you could put your own comment on top of someone else's tweet. And what that would do is that would, um, that would give me the chance to basically have a fact check of an elected official. So an elected official tweets out and says, you know, this is the best state budget. Uh, you know, there's nothing, da, da, da. and I could put a comment on top of it. Actually, this <laughs> budget X, Y, and Z. And it, that to me too is a really powerful thing to have a, a piece of context yeah. on top of what people are saying on social media. Yeah, fact check or a truth check. And you check. can't really do that. You can do it on Facebook, but you couldn't do it the same way. Twitter was an early platform to have that fact checking kind of part. So you've talked about how it's evolved and, and changed and there's all these other elements such as linking to your stories and, and the audio and, and the video. But but how would you say it um, affects, how does it shape coverage of stories at the state capitol? I, well, not only does it shape coverage, I think it shapes policy. Uh, so let me talk about both of those. I mean, it shapes coverage because I think um, like it does in so many places across America now, journalists are big users of Twitter and we read each other's tweets. Mm -hmm. And we compare what you knew to what I know and what you might be covering versus what I'm covering. And I think that seeps into the way we cover the news. Now, sometimes I think that's good because I think, um, you know, two heads or 10 heads are better than one. And like, you know, we can all go, yeah, that's what I heard too out of that. That's the story. Sometimes, though, it can, I think it can lead to more of the pack journalism. Herd mentality. Is, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's particularly good. Yeah. But I do think it shapes public policy, too. I don't want to forget in talking about that. I watched members of the legislature early on, and still they do it, reading these tweets in real time about what they were saying and what we were perceiving it, and noticeably having a reaction during floor debates. Hmm. Not, not only coming over to me and saying, well, that's not right, or that's not what I meant, but also knowing how their words were playing in real time in their actions. And therefore, you know, no longer is it the news cycle. Right. Of, uh, well, we see how it played in the paper or on the six o'clock news right. in real time. Now they know how the public is seeing the work they're doing, sometimes good, sometimes bad. So it's an extra level of awareness by them on what they're saying and what they're it's doing. It's hypercharged in yeah. some way. I mean, it's like when I tell groups of doing speaking events where we had a 24 hour news cycle, then we had a 24 minute news cycle and it's a 24 character news cycle. It's that uh, instant real time. So when you look at the use of social media like Twitter uh, in particular, since that's the news part of this, mm -hmm. uh, how do you divide your time, or is there a formula, really? How do you divide your time between generating that kind of content versus content for the web versus content for the newspaper? Uh, very carefully, uh, or uh, sporadically <laughs> or chaotically. Yeah, there may um, not be a formula. But well, and, your... and in recent times, I mean, so I've been bureau chief uh, for the Times for the last three and a half years. Um, people who follow me on Twitter may have noticed, maybe they don't, because there's so many people on Twitter now. Uh, I don't tweet as often as I used to, uh, simply because I have too many other things to do and, and working with my reporters on their stories, working my own coverage. Um, I just tend to approach it as... a when I see something notable, I'll flag it. And that, um, that may be five times a day. That may be 15 times a day. Um, I had an early social media director at a news organization I worked at who was like, well, you've got to be on it at least once a day. You know, if you don't feed the beast at least once, feed the beast, bad uh, universe for us journalists. Right. Um, it's not worth it. 
And I get that, but I don't, I try not to make a formula or a limit on it, but I, I know when I've got to get other work done. I don't get paid for Twitter. Uh, I appreciate being an influencer, but that doesn't change my paycheck at all. But um, I do think live tweeting events sometimes is a place that I enjoy using it. And, and give um, me an example of that. Or, or what's, uh, state why is of it the a, state, governor's okay. state of the state, okay. um, you know, where you can kind of comment in real time about what the governor is saying. Um, negotiations at the Capitol, certainly that traditional 2009, so-and-so is uh, arguing with so-and-so in the back of the chamber about the uh, real estate transaction tax. Or we're waiting for the big five in front of the governor's office. Or, speaking of that real estate transaction tax, which was part of the housing deal a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. we could watch in real time as the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon, was calling members into his office one by one. You and I have seen that many years in a row of twisting arms yep. to get a vote. Yep. And we could tweet that in real time. Now, whether that made the pressure that much worse on them, as I said a moment ago, remains to be seen. Uh, but I think things like that. And then also um, uh, a little bit of explanation to stories we do uh, in the paper. Uh, and then I'll tell you one other place. Uh, again, I feel like this old guy who like it took a while to discover this. Uh, once everyone started learning how to thread tweets, which if you're watching this and you don't know what that is, I mean, right, you take one that's linked to another one that's linked to another one, so you can have a narrative of a story. It's ongoing, right. Um, I did those on several days on election days. Things I'm looking for, the 10 things that I think are big on this particular election day, and I'd thread them together, or to combat the East Coast media of why, you know, California's all screwed up with why long it takes to count votes. And I'd say, it takes that long because of this law and that law and that law. And so... I've used it in that way. I think that's another service. That's a that's journalism. Because that way you can you can get beyond that limit of the characters yeah. and, and get into more of a discussion of it. Yeah, I mean, and you don't want to. I mean, I'm not going to do 45 tweets no. in a row. Like I no. said, I'm not going to tweet uh, the Prop 98 school funding guarantee. That's not what you're paid for. But I do think that um, I do think the that the great thing about Twitter, the bad thing about Twitter, is it can be too short and not mean anything. The great thing is you can actually offer context for the people who are real followers and real consumers of it. So uh, before Twitter, um, if, a, if a politician put out a press release every other day or they had a press conference once a week, they sort of suffered in terms of their credibility. It's, you got tired of them. You know, yeah. Familiarity breeds contempt. I and, know some of those people. Yes, yes. Whereas Twitter, um, regular presence is actually a good thing. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, uh, and, and you, but you can quickly tell which politicians really do the tweeting and which ones have staff do it. Yeah. And the staff one is just another, it's, it's, it's not useful to me. It's another example of the press release that was not interesting. Uh, it's not genuine. You can feel it. I mean, yeah. like you can cut kind of, your detector kind of goes off there versus there are members of the legislature. And I'm sure your influencers list measures that in some ways mm-hmm. who are real engagers of the medium. And I think offer really interesting insight. I'll give you one really quickly. Um, in the newspaper uh, recently, we had an op-ed by Stormy Daniels, the woman who, of course, uh, has all of the uh, long story of her alleged relationship with the president. Right. Stormy Daniels uh, writing an op-ed about the uh, California Supreme Court ruling about independent contractors versus working for a company, the Dynamex uh, ruling, mm-hmm. as it is, saying that independent contractors are good because, of course, she's been an adult uh, performer and a dancer at clubs. Lorena Gonzalez Fletcher, the assemblywoman from San Diego, who has been pushing to require more people to be employees and not independent contractors, immediately fired back and said, 
She doesn't know what she's talking about. I'd be happy to debate you anytime. I, of course, was then going to tweet and say I'd be the moderator of that debate. <laughs> that would be fascinating. That would be. But Assemblywoman Gonzalez is a very active user of Twitter, and you can get a sense of who she is. And I think that comes through not only for uh, reporters, but for their constituents. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because she is, um, she is in that list of top influencers in the legislature. Specifically, Lorena Gonzalez, uh, Wendy Carrillo, and David Chu in the Assembly. And then in the Senate, Scott Weiner, Kevin DeLeon, and then Holly Mitchell and Mike McGuire were sort of tied for third place. Yeah, Scott Weiner from San Francisco and Mike McGuire from the North Coast, both. Mm -hmm. You can get a sense of who they are by what they put in those messages. And I think um, offers a way for us as journalists to kind of then engage with them in a different way. Of course, Twitter can be dangerous. Uh, the president is really the Twitter guy that has led a lot of that discussion because what you put up goes up. Yep. And even though you may delete it, it's never gone. Someone can find it somewhere. And I'm glad you brought that up because that, that is, it, it can be very effective. It can be very treacherous. You have to be very careful what you tweet out there because it can take you down. Can I give you another 30 second antidote Please. to Twitter? This is a podcast. Uh, why not? Okay. That'll now go 45 seconds. Um, uh, Folks will remember that several years ago, FBI uh, arrested and subsequently prosecuted uh, federal prosecutors, uh, Ron Calderon, state senator mm -hmm. from Southern California, um, on uh, political corruption, corruption charges. Right. Um, well, when we all learned about that case, when the FBI agents raided the state capitol, mm -hmm. uh, we subsequently learned that there had been an undercover agent posing as a businessman who had been offering money or business, you know, wanted business, wanted help. And these were the allegations against Calderon. He had been on Twitter, this FBI undercover agent under his uh, uh, assumed name. Once we found out the assumed name, I'll never forget this, that night finding his Twitter account. And there were countless photos of him with Senator Calderon, arms around, cigar smoking, things, screenshot, screenshot, screenshot. I screenshotted <laughs> them all. This is actually, you'll appreciate this as an XTV guy, Kevin. I screenshotted them all. The next morning, that Twitter account had been deactivated. The FBI realized that the guy's cover was going to get blown. But I had screenshotted all the photos, and yeah. I worked in television at that time. So you had them. And I was the only reporter at the Capitol who had those photos and had that for the 6 o'clock news for my piece the next night. Wow. We digitized out the FBI agent's face for uh, because he was undercover. But again... Those things never go away. And, and I think that people in elected office sometimes think if I hit delete, it's gone. It ain't gone. Yeah, it leaves a trail. Yeah. Um, I, th I think of people in Congress, and I think of, of Ted Lieu, for example. He's one that's, that's very colorful. And, and started in Sacramento and, being very colorful. That's right. Yes. That's right. And, and so these guys, uh, as you say, the, you can tell when, they're, when it's them and um, when they're really speaking from their own personality. Well, and the president. I mean, the president certainly, I mean, has changed the There's entire no doubt. conversation. There is no doubt that the president does his own tweets. Yes, because <laughs> they haven't been spell-checked. They're at random times. Uh, and yes, and then all the things that he says. But that goes back to the good and bad of Twitter and social media, if I can say, because, you know, there's a lot of criticism that, dri that drives national news cycles in ways that maybe it shouldn't, that it disproportionate um, attention or coverage to things that are small versus what's really going on. And I think it's incumbent upon journalists. I mean, you know, we may be on the digital influencers list, but we ultimately have responsibility, I think, to how we use it and whether or not we consider that to be news. We shouldn't change our traditional way of defining what news is. But it is true, I think, that the president's, I don't want to get into a great conversation about, about that, but the attention to his tweets can be very outsized. Yeah. Um, 
when you compare it to what it really, to the importance of it. And and I think Californians should note that we have a very active governor on Twitter now. Jerry Brown was not very active on Twitter. As a matter of fact, Jerry Brown was almost never on Twitter. Right. Uh, Gavin Newsom is quite active and is quite active about President Trump and is quite active about other things. And so is his wife, the first partner of California, mm-hmm. Jennifer Siebel Newsom, yep. very active on Twitter. I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic for 2019 and beyond. Uh, the Digital Influencers Report uh, looked at three specific end-of-session battles last year, and I don't want to get into the, the weeds on it because it's not necessary. They don't fit in tweets. Go ahead. They, they, yeah. yeah, but but uh, the SB, 80, SB 822, the net neutrality bill, SB 10, the bail reform bill by Hertzberg, and then SB 901, that was the wildfire prevention bill by, by Dodd. Uh, all three of those had strong digital communications campaigns on their behalf, all three um, passed, and it may not have been the definitive reason why they passed, but it certainly helped, and it gave them momentum. As as a journalist, do you pay attention to those kinds of digital campaigns when it comes to the back and forth on the legislation? I do, but I try to put them in context because so many people are trying to use Twitter to change the the debate, the narrative. I mean, and that's they're right, of course. That's uh, advocacy. That's uh, any kind of way you can do it. Um, it's obviously easier on Twitter if you're able to if you're able to track them by bill number or hashtags or SB10 or whatever it is. Um, but I but it also depends on who the tweets are coming from. I mean, like you were saying those, and I was thinking about who they were. So on the um, on the SB10 one mm-hmm. on bail reform, yep. a lot of the tweets uh, that I saw that were over the top and kind of became counterproductive for me watching those news were from the bail industry, from the bail bond industry. Sure. They were quite active and they were trying to make their way known. On wildfire, mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of victims groups of people representing wildfire victims who were very active on it. And that also, that I think actually helped in some ways for me to understand how it might play in um, Sonoma County, Absolutely. how it might play up in the North State, places that have been impacted. Because that was, in, in many respects, uh, sort of an insiderish bill mm-hmm. uh, because it didn't just deal with wildfire victims it, it dealt a lot a lot with liability of utilities and so I think the, the wildfire victims the attorneys were able to successfully capitalize on the kind of the emotional aspect right. of the victims right. which which helped to pass the bill it also was a throwback to the old school of old school Twitter for <laughs> me because SB 901 um, had this um, momentous moment in a conference committee late at night of where the new language of this wildfire bill was rolled out and there was rancor in the room that no one had seen the details, that it wasn't fully cooked, that it wasn't. And we were, and I was one of them, using tweets in real time to talk about what they were saying and what it meant and the fact that there had been no transparency about the way that this sweeping piece of legislation was put together. So that to me was another one of those moments where um, the public may not be watching on the cow channel but somebody who cares about 901 can read that, can have dinner with their wife, as the lobbyist told me, right. uh, and How can convenient. get a glimpse of it from what journalists can do with that. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so, so conclusions here. I mean, uh, probably easy to conclude that that Twitter is no longer optional. It's kind of mandatory. Oh no, I'm turning it? it off next year. I'm not going to be on your list. I anymore. love it. Uh, I love it. No, it's not. It's not optional. Um, but I think it's not optional in the same way that. Um, uh, that audio gear is not optional for a radio reporter or a camera for a television reporter or pen and pad, although, frankly, cameras and audio for newspapers now, too. Right. Because it's another news-gathering tool. Um, 
And I think our readers, our viewers, our listeners do expect part of that. And, uh, and we know that there are sometimes people who will get a glimpse of a story with us on social media that will then turn to our traditional platform for the full story. And that's a little advertising, but it's true. And so I know I don't think it's optional at all. I think I think you have to be engaged in some way, but I think you need to be engaged in a, in a value added way. I think if you're just really tweeting your lunch, <laughs> um, people quickly are going to look at it and go, I'm not interested. In sure, this. sure. It's got to have some value. Yeah. Um, so if I tweet my lunch now, we'll know what happened. People I'm going to say, what happened to John Myers? <laughs> um, so so you, you sort of touched on this, but as we wrap this up, uh, put your crystal ball on it. It took a while to figure out the value of it, the utility of it. Mm-hmm. But looking forward, how do you think journalists are going to make use of, of Twitter? Of Twitter specifically? Just because, it, just yeah. because it's such a newsy yeah. platform. Um, I think we're going to have to find ways... That's tough. I, I think we're going to have to find ways to continue to make it value added. Um, I think I do think fact checking is a really valuable part of this. I think the national conversation has helped that because um, I think people need uh, they need something that they feel like is not spin. And I think I think journalists uh, are, are going to use that more. But I think there are some journalists who are tempted and pulled into the engaging in the debate in a way that I don't think is constructive. Um, and so I think looking forward, the push-pull between being a fact check and a and a um, an opinion angle, uh, or the hot take, as it's called, mm. um, that's that's the dynamic that I'm most interested in. And I think I think how we land on that is going to say a lot about uh, the way the public perceives us as journalists and whether or not we're we're there to just see it and tell them or to engage in it. And different journalists have different roles, I should sure. say. Not everybody is a uh, is a straight journalist. Sure. One opinion journalist. Sure. But I think that push and pull is the thing that I'm most interested in in the next few years because that's the thing that I think is most prevalent now, how journalists are using it. But you um, make a great point. I'm glad you brought up that, that you have columnists, you have you have opinion people, right. you have straight-ahead reporters. Yeah, and we have our editorial board that has its own Twitter account, and they sure. do their thing. And Some then, people are sort of a hybrid, but but nonetheless, you yes. do have these different roles. But you have to know who you're following, but it's also really incumbent to us to explain what we do. And really quickly, let me, let me of add one thing to this. I think the more journalists can be transparent about how they gather news and why they gather the news, is really valuable. There's a, a political editor at the New York Times who started a thing recently where he's explaining the decisions they made and why they're covering candidates in the race for president. I think that's hugely valuable. I think people appreciate uh, transparency in what we do. Washington Post also periodically posts uh, video clips that talk about how they've developed a story or how mm-hmm. they've gathered a story. And I think that's more that's of more interest than just to journalism people. I think yeah. the public likes to see that kind and, and of thing. And we need to engage with our audience on it. I, I haven't said this, but um, at first with Twitter, I didn't really want to get into back and forths with people. I still don't want to get into a long back and forth because at a certain point, there's no It's not productive. Right. But I do want to answer questions about a story, an event, or the coverage. I want to be accessible that way. And I find that's really valuable. And I find some people appreciate that. And they're yep. like, wow, you actually responded to that. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm a real guy. I'll tell you what I think I know about it. It's an it. open channel. Yeah. All right. John Meyer, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm Kevin Riggs with Randall, and we'll talk to you next time.